to that song. Um, it's going to kind of come out in the, in the message today if you kind of look for it. If you kind of, uh, uh, as we go through, in, in, and if, if you're new here, we've been in the book of 1 Timothy. We've made it to the third chapter. And um, <clears throat> kind of categorically, 1 Timothy is kind of broken up. And we, in the first chapter, we looked at the, the area and the issues and the attitudes of faith. That's kind of chapter one. You can go back and either listen to the sermons online or dive in, better yet, dive in and just read it for yourself. First Timothy, the first chapter. The second chapter was Paul talks about uh, prayer. That was last week, and we spent, uh, the service looked a little bit different because we had you guys, while you were meeting and greeting there right before the announcement time, we had you guys uh, talk to somebody maybe you didn't know and find out a couple of things about them that you could be praying for them. Who, who, who was a part of that this last week? Don't be bashful. How did it go? Did you remember to pray for your people? Awesome. Awesome. That's, that's great. And that's what we need to do. And, and a lot of that is, is twofold. One is that we should be praying for one another, obviously. But two is to kind of build relationships in the body, too to build relationships and new people coming and, and so on and so forth. So it's not just the same group of people that, that hang out all throughout the week, but that we can really kind of broaden our horizons as a church, get to know one another a little better. And, and uh, that really happens when, you know, when I'm thinking of Bill on a Thursday morning that I can pray for Bill and uh, hold him up, even though maybe I don't know Bill very well. Um, I'm going to start thinking about that today, this morning, and so then, who re, let me, here's the real test. Who reconnected with the people that you were praying for? Oh, we got a few hands. Awesome. I would encourage you to do that after the service. We have a whole potluck, so you have, you have a, a whole afternoon to kind of reconnect with the people that you were praying for if they're here and uh, say, hey, how did it go? You know, how did it go? You know, did you have, like if, if you were praying for somebody and they said, hey, you know, I'm a parent of a teenager, so I need lots of patience. You know, how was their patient level, you know? Uh, how did it go throughout the week? Uh, a little uh, correction, um, we're not going to have Sunday evening service, and I was joking with Les a little bit, um, we talked about this Monday night that when we have potlucks, we won't have a, a Sunday evening service, and so I'm going to do what um, Paul told Timothy in, I think it's chapter 4, Guy should re- a young man should rebuke an older fella with a lot of caution, and so I just wanted to cautiously correct David because it's pretty apparent he's older than I am. And, and, I, and I do that with love and reverence, and, and here he comes, and with respect. I, I hope the back door's not locked. <laughs> okay, okay, we're in, we're good. Uh, today, as we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at the the uh, concepts of ministry, really the character of ministry uh, is what's there. And too often, I want to start with a little caution here. Uh, too often for too long in the body of Christ, First Timothy chapter 3 has just become a checklist. It's just, it's just been kind of a checklist of, of, you know, so is this person, are they suited to be in ministry in some form of leadership in a church? don't allow this chapter to just be a checklist in your Christian faith. 
uh, push against that, and we're going to get into that and the reasons why we should get a, that we should push against that. Now, is it a, you know, is it a list? Absolutely, it is a list. Uh, but <clears throat> Christians have used this tool just to evaluate others entering into Christian leadership, which is a good thing, and we should do that. But before we begin, let's identify actually really kind of two deep-seated issues in the church. And this is part of the reason why we, we need to be careful to look at it a little bit differently, not just a list of, of uh, solely as a list of qualifications. And you're kind of wondering, why, where is he going with this? Um, <clears throat> we have two issues in the church currently today in our culture. Those two issues is, one, we have a poor game plan for future generations. I'm not talking about every single person. I'm just talking in broad strokes, in generalities in the church. We've done a poor job. Let's just give ourselves a grade as Christ followers. And, and over the years, over the generations, we've, we've done, I believe, and, and I think that we kind of all kind of a little bit intuitively know that we've, we've done kind of a poor job of setting up the next generation to be successful uh, in areas of ministry. Uh, church uh, transitions in ministry are the hardest things to accomplish for a church. Uh, <clears throat> and most churches do not plan well. Uh, they don't have a, 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 a long-term vision in that area. It usually ends up, oftentimes it ends up, sadly, it ends up in some sort of a church split, some sort of a fracture, uh, some sort of a tug-of-war. And so there's, there's really just a poor game plan um, for future generations in that way when it comes to uh, leadership. Uh, two, two, oftentimes there's this de- deep-seated issue. There's kind of the mindset to look at them, don't look at me attitude. In other words, Timothy chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 3 is often it's like, oh, well, so, so he's going to be a potential leader in the church. Let's just stare at him and let's hold up 1 Timothy against him. And we should do that, as I mentioned earlier. But it's kind of a, it's good for them. They need those things. But those aren't present realities in my life, just as a person that just shows up or maybe is involved in a little bit of ministry here and there, maybe a small group or a children's ministry or whatnot. There's kind of a look at them and don't look at me concept. Um, both of these things need to, they need to be torn down God's always had a generational view for his people. And we do well to retrain with those ideals. And so <clears throat> that's, that's part of why we do the ministries that we do, even at the younger ages, when Matt come up and talk about Awana. It's not just all fun and games. It is fun and games. It is a blast, for sure. Uh, but there's a lot of teaching and training that goes on. That being said, parents, you can't, you can't just depend on the Awana ministry, or you can't depend on Sunday mornings, to be all of the spiritual intake that your kids ever get. That's your job. That's your responsibility. Right? There was a funny kind of meme online that said, uh, a study show that parents are surprised that two hours of youth ministry cannot combat 30 hours of TikTok. Right? <laughs> parents are surprised. It's kind of making, you know, poking fun at the church a little bit. But there's, some, there's a lot of reality to it. For too long, too many people have just relied on whatever the church has for a few hours a week to supplement what they need to be doing all throughout the week. So God's had that generational view. We need to recapture that. We need to do a better job at preparing our own young people uh, in the go forward. 
And then the second thing is, is that uh, <clears throat> this idea that the mindset, this passage, is only for those in church leadership. That's not true either. At the core of 1 Timothy chapter 3 are just basic Christ-like character traits that everyone should be obtaining and growing in spiritually. We all have this opportunity to be influential, not just people that are serving on the board. You are called as a Christ follower to be influential somewhere and in some capacity. That means these traits, these Christ-like character qualities are just as relevant for you even if you never serve in any place of leadership in the church. It's still relevant. And so we need to rethink that. Uh, the end game really is that we should all be growing towards Christ maturity, towards maturity in Jesus. Let's look, and we'll use these verses to open up 1 Timothy chapter 3. In Ephesians, Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 4, 13 through 15, he tells them, tells them this. This is kind of that picture of of all of us growing up, he says this, till we all come to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the perfect man, to the measure of the statue of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ." That's what we should be like. That's where our arrows should be flying. That should be the target that we're looking at as parents, as, as, uh, for our kids. Kids, that's what you should be like. Mom and dad, help me get there, right? If you're a new believer, latch on to a seasoned believer. Say, hey, help me get there. Ephesians 4 tells us this is what it should look like. Let's go there. And I'm saying as a body, that's where we're going. That's where we're headed. And so let's just get there. Let's just go. And it's a process. It's not an event. It is a lifelong process. So turn with me now. We'll dive into that with that kind of in the backdrop, teeing up 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's start there. First, <clears throat> Paul, writing to, his, writing to his young protege, Timothy, says this in verse 1 of chapter 3. This is a faithful saying. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Paul's shoring up these issues that we've mentioned the last couple of weeks. There was, there was issues in the church in Ephesus. There was people that had kind of came in and, and they were kind of stirring things up. They were pushing and pulling for places of leadership. Their doctrine was bad. It was evil. They were trying to, trying to weasel in and trying to change the church. So Paul's coming against this by shoring up for Timothy, what good leadership look, looks like. And the reality is, notice that phrase there, if a man desires the position of a bishop, if a man desires the position, it should be, I'm going to say this, it should be desirable, men. Like to, to be in a place of leadership should be something that we should, it's not, a, it's not a bad desire. It's actually, he says it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good desire and it's a good work, he says. Men were created to work hard, physically, mentally, and spiritually. God also created you to work hard in leadership. It's not a bad thing. It is counter to our culture. And this is what I'm talking about. 
For years now I've coached, many of you have heard this, and I try not to use too many sports metaphors, especially after licking our wounds this weekend. But that being said, that being said, I've coached for a lot of years, and what I see is I see this growing trend in our young people to not be the one to rise up and say, hey, I'm willing to, I'm willing to stand out here. I'm willing to lead. And, and fortunately, fortunately, there is always at least one or two, right? But it's, that trend is going away. The kids do not want to lead, oftentimes. They don't want to be that kid. I'm not sure exactly why. Maybe they don't know how. Maybe they've never been taught. Maybe they've never had that example out in front of them to stand up and say, hey, I'll be the one that works the hardest on this team. I'll be the one that, that goes the extra mile. I'll be the one that's always here first and always leaves last. I'll be the one to set the example for my teammates. That's leadership at the, at the local level as far as, you know, like football, basketball, school sports, or what have you. The same is true, really, when it comes to, when it comes to spiritual leadership. You have to have that that drive, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't have that drive. They don't want to stand out. The kids do not want to stand away from their peers. It's an interesting phenomenon that I see happening more and more each and every year. We're called to come against that as Christ followers and be the ones that stand out. So men, if you have a desire to be in a place of leadership, don't think that that's a bad thing. The Bible says, the Lord says it's a great thing. It's a good desire, and he desires a good work, he says there at the end of verse 1. We were created for it. Now, you may see words like elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, uh, shepherd. That's really what he's talking about here. All of those are kind of used uh, synonymously in the Bible, in the New Testament. They kind of all mean the same thing. The church has done a, a job over the centuries of separating those out and looking differently but in the greek they really essentially mean the same people they're same mean the same thing by application right so a pastor is a, a shepherd but a, a bishop an overseer an elder guess what they're to do they're to shepherd the flock so we we get no matter what term you put up there the responsibility is the same the responsibility is the same right and so we're to shepherd the flock and fathers, if there's dads in here or expecting fathers, like the best way, or young men, the best way that you can learn to be a future leader is to be a leader in your home. And, and Paul gets into that in these later chapters. He says, lead at home. Well, I won't get ahead of myself. I'll just say that, uh, be thinking of these things. These terms used synonymously, pastor, elder, shepherd, deacon. He talks also to deacons. The word for deacon there is servant. Throughout the New Testament, we see the leadership in the church is this. It's plural. It's always to the elders, to the deacons. The responsibility plays out in a plural sense. That's why 11 years ago, 12 years ago, whenever it was, we kind of overhauled all of our documentation, all of our, our, our bylaws and constitution here to reflect that in a real and applicable way kind of went away from just a single senior pastor model and we went to a, a full board of elders where all of the shepherding is, is spread upon a multitude of shoulders in that way. And it was kind of a hard transition. And the reason it was a hard transition was because everybody that was here, including myself, including 
all the elders at the time, and the deacons, we had all kind of grown up under the, a different look, a different, a different model. And uh, <clears throat> I will say for that, has it been 12 years? I think we're, on, we're coming into year 12, I believe, that uh, it, is, it has been a, quite a journey in a good way. Um, it's been nice. I, I don't have to stress over everything. I don't have to do everything, right? We, there's a truly a team of elders and a team of deacons, and, uh, and it's been great. But you will see, I just threw that in there just for a little bit of clarification if you're curious about how we operate. Um, we operate in a, a true and active elder model. And I remember a, a fellow that's, uh, well, he's in glory now, old Nolan. He, uh, he asked us early on in the process, he says, Help us to understand how to communicate what we're doing with the people that are around us. Because I have neighbors that are asking us if you guys are Mormon. It's like, no, we're not. No, we're not Mormon. We're not Mormon. But it was a hard transition. And, uh, and he was with us on it. He just wanted a good way to have just a, two lines of clarification that he could share with people. So if you have any more questions about that, I'll get off that topic. But uh, surely come and see us. Plural leadership, plural leadership in the church is under the singular headship of Jesus Christ. We just read about that in Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 15, the next, uh, Ephesians 4, 15 talks about that. So plural leadership in the church, under Christ's headship. So speaking of Jesus, there's a verse here that gives us a, a, a look at what that uh, work looks like. When Paul tells Timothy it's a good desire and a good work, he says, the writer of Hebrews gives us a look at that in verse 24. He says, And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. That's part of the interaction that we should have as leadership, but that's part of the interaction that we should have just as a body. That we should be encouraging one another. We should be, we should be uh, considering one another. That's part of the reason we asked you to pray for one another last week. That we should be considering each other to stir up, to stir up, to kind of get it whipped up. You know, you put... I love, I love homemade whipped cream, right? Like Cool Whip, homemade whipped cream, you know, and that just has to be in that blender and just gets all whipped up. And that's kind of the picture that we want to have in our minds when, when the writer of Hebrews says, consider one another to stir up in a good way, not stirring up trouble, not stirring up dissension, not stirring up strife in a body, but stirring up love, so connecting with one another, Loving on one another, right? Getting to know one another and bearing one another's burdens. And also, with that, naturally flows out good works. Stirring up love and good works. So when we're loving on one another, we're not only just praying for one another and considering one another's, you know, what's going on in one another's life, but then we're actively like, Paul, how can I help you this week? Like, you need firewood, you need, you know, you follow me? Like, we're looking to figure out how we can be a blessing to one another, how we can, how we can minister to one another, and that's a, a, good, a good work. Another passage in Ephesians, talking about leadership, talking about how God laid out the church. Paul says to the Ephesians church, who's really getting, the Ephesians church is really getting a triple dose where Paul writes first to the Ephesians, then he writes to Timothy about the Ephesians, and he writes to Timothy, of course, two epistles. So they get kind of a triple dose from the Apostle Paul. But in the first letter to the church in Ephesus, he writes this, and, he's, and he himself, so talking about Jesus, 
He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And here's the reason why. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So our job in leadership is to help you get equipped to get to that spot as, a, as, a, as, a, as an average young person, say we got some average teenage boys, to get to that point where later in life you're in a role that you're helping other people be spiritually equipped doesn't start in their 30s. Parents, fathers, you can help your boys, you can help your young men. Start that process now. Start that process now. Of course, the verses in Hebrews that we just read is the is the blueprint, really, is the pathway to do that. But our job as church leaders, the very ones that Paul is shoring up here in 1 Timothy 3, this is essentially the task. This is the role. This is how it plays out. This is how it's applied in the church. Another uh, stigma, another thing that we need to deal with is for too long being a church leader has had a negative connotation, a negative stigma, stigma attached to it. Uh, I believe that's an unbiblical view. For far too long, for too many times, have people's like, yeah, doc, no, you want, you want me? No way. And the, the leadership in the local church le- level has suffered because of a social stigma that's attached with it. No way am I going to do that. That's a poor reflection on, on church in general, I believe. Because what's that saying in, in essence is that the church is full of sharks and there's no way that you're going to get this guy to step into the water. Because he's like, I don't want any part of it. I'll show up, I'll sing, I'll listen, I'll give. I might even show up on a Tuesday night Bible study. I'll participate in a few ways. But to stand up and be a leader, there's no way that I'm going to go in that direction. And, and it's either because their view and their experience in church has been really negative and they've seen people in church leadership get chewed up and spit out, or, or the second thing is, is they don't feel like they're qualified. There's really only comes down to two avenues. Now. And maybe they're not. And so maybe, they're, maybe it's not because of shark-infested waters necessarily. Maybe it's because they don't see themselves as qualified. I want to say that we need to retrain and rethink against those types of unbiblical views. We need to see it as Paul wrote it here, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We need to see it as a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good work in desiring a position of leadership. Now, let's get into the must-haves. Verse 2, as he goes on to say, a bishop must... Be blameless, the husband of one wife. Temperate. When he says, uses the old-fashioned word here, temperate, that means not hot-headed. Like if you got a real light trigger pull on your temper, and trust me, like that's who I used to be at times, I had a real light pull. You guys know what I'm talking about. Men especially, you're looking at me like, oh yeah, I know what he's talking about. Right? I could lose it that quick. I wasn't temperate when I was younger. That's something that's a discipline that's learned uh, through (laughs) hard knocks, literally. Um, But we need to be temperate. Sober-minded. 
sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. This one here is one that, that trips a lot of men up. I don't feel like I'm able to teach, you might be thinking. Uh, <clears throat> the same writer to Hebrews, later in the book of Hebrews, essentially is scolding the Hebrews believers because they had been believers a long time, yet they were still on the milk. And he says, by now you should be teachers. So there's a natural built-in expectation for Christ followers to grow in their faith, to get to that point where they can share their faith, where they can teach somebody else, where they can minister to a non-believer or a younger believer in some capacity. That's a natural built-in expectation. We, don't, we gravitate away from that expectation a lot of times in church because we, we kind of have a cultural uh, mindset as a consumer rather than a participant. And we need to come against that mindset as well. But we need to grow in our faith to be able to teach. One of the great things I love that we're doing in the Iwana program is we're encouraging the younger people, the teenagers, to prepare lessons to teach the younger kids on somewhat of a regular basis. That's part of that process learning how to share the Word of God. Not only that, verse 3 says, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetousness, covetous, one who rules his house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Let's pause there for a second. He's talking about reputations here, in a lot of sense, in in a community. Uh, if you're given to wine, you're going to have a reputation as being a drunk or a boozer or whatever, right? If you're quarrelsome or if you're greedy, uh, if, if you struggle and are always wanting what somebody else has, which is the essence of, of coveting, you know, you're going to have that, you're going to have that kind of tag-along reputation. Rather, he says, we need to be gentle, We need to have the reputation of one who rules his house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. He goes on to say in verse 5 with the explanation of that, For if a man does not know how to rule his own house well, how will he care for the church of God? It's a fair question, right? It's the right question. So if you can't lead at home, if you can't lead at home, if you're you're struggling or you're you're in sin because you're not leading your family the way that the Word says and you're ignoring what the Word says or whatever the case is, then you need to abstain from some of these positions. But he asks the question, if you can't do it at home, how can you do it in the church of God? Number six, not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Verse 8, likewise, deacons must be reverent. So now he's kind of split off initially. In the first few verses, he talks about elders, bishops, pastors, shepherds, however you want to say it. Now he talks about those who serve as servants in the church. He says, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, but holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. I won't get in, I'll get into this in a little bit, but if you have a highlighter or something, underline that phrase, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let those also first be tested, so back to the deacons, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, 
faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So there is a checklist aspect to these verses, I get that. And without making too much of, a, of just a how we doing in this and how we doing in that and, and so on and so forth, without really doing that, we can say that these character qualities uh, are applied in several ways. They can be applied in several ways. They can be applied broadly. They can be applied broadly or specifically. When I say broadly, I say in the sense that everyone needs to be blameless, hospitable, having good behavior, be gentle, and so on. So there's a broad application for everybody, regardless of your gender, regardless of your age, uh, that, that God is saying these are godly traits these are godly characteristics that each Christ follower needs to be, you know, growing in. I'll put it that way. We need to be growing in these things, right? So that's kind of the broad application for everybody. I'll say it specifically in the sense that God wants us to understand and measure these biblical qualities of men in leadership, okay? That God wants us to understand and measure and <clears throat> the biblical qualities of men in leadership. Uh, we're a church that has men in leadership. I think it's very s straightforward from the word. Uh, if you look at the pronouns, it's not hard to figure out. Um, <clears throat> and so it's pretty hard for a lady to be an elder and live out, verse 4, one who rules his own house well, well, we've already off the mark because of the pronouns. It's not a slam against ladies in any way. I want you to know that pure, straight, forwardly. Not in any way. And uh, if you get into the book of Titus, Titus gives us the greatest uh, word, not Titus, but Paul writing to Titus gives us the greatest word of how ladies can have a role in the church, an influential role of leadership in the church in and amongst ladies training ladies. Let the older ladies, you know, spend time, teach and train younger ladies and so on. And the early church was full, I want to say this also, the early church was full of influential Christ-like, Christ-following women that were a great example to follow. I can give you those references later if you'd like them. But specifically, Paul talks about men in leadership. And if you go back, if you weren't here last week, if you go back to uh, starting in what about verse 8 of chapter 2, you'll see kind of some of those commandments that he lays out for Timothy in regard to how the church should function. So specifically mentioned here is how a man leads his family will reflect his leading in the church. How a man leads his family will reflect how he leads the church. That makes everybody kind of sit up straight. It makes me sit up straight. And I will say straightforwardly, I, I, there was times where uh, I was ready uh, to step down because of this. Because I didn't feel like I was, and I didn't have a, 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 a real good hold, I would say, maybe. Or I felt like I was not measuring up to what God would have me, how God would measure up a leader. So there's times when our kids were at home that I thought, I don't know, maybe I should just carry my resignation and my, you know, to the board meeting on somewhat of a regular basis. And it wasn't because of what my kids were doing. It was because of I didn't feel like I was leading I was convicted in how I was leading, maybe to get our feelings out of the way. I was convicted in how I was leading. And uh, God says, you know, rather than just quit, why don't you just change 
what you're doing and get with the program. So that's what, where we went. But how a man leads his family will reflect his leadership in the church. There's a correlation. The second one is there's a correlation specifically between <clears throat> being a novice and the temptation for pride. A new believer, a new believer is more, prou- uh, more prone in that sense to, to struggling with pride if they're given a place of leadership, right? So Paul says, hey, not a novice. They're going to struggle with the same thing that the enemy struggled with. And he ended up breaking away, rebelling against God, and taking a whole bunch of followers with him. The fourth one is, is that a man's reputation in the community uh, and potential reproach. There's the issues of his reputation in the community uh, and, and the potential for reproach. If you look back up, in verse 7, he says, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are on the outside. Talking about outside the church, right? In the community. Does this fellow have a good reputation in the outside of the community? See, these are all points and pieces, dads, that we should be instilling into our kids. That they understand, you know, your reputation matters. Your reputation matters. And so, a good way that we've heard in the past, that I've used with Robbie when he was younger and still living at home. Now he's running his own show. Right? Has his own household. But uh, he would be headed out to do something, and I would use the phrase occasionally, hey, remember your last name. I want that to be the last thing that he would hear because if he was out to get into kind of some sort of mischief, which was often, let's be honest, which was often, he would admit to that, right? That I want him to be thinking of the fact that he's not just out there goofing off with nobody watching him. A, that God is watching over him. That, that I have at least a somewhat of a sense of where he's going. But moreoverly, that who does he represent? So I say, hey, remember your last name. Remember your last name. Represent your last name well. Above that, and kind of overarching over that thing, is represent God well. We need to teach our young men to represent God well in our community. And there's kind of this idea that uh, he says in verse 7, he must have a good testimony, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. In other words, if we don't have a good testimony, if our testimony is broken in the, the, uh, in the community at large because of the things that we've been involved in or, or what have you, business dealings or what have, whatever the situation is, uh, you're going to fall in. If you put someone like that in a place of leadership, they're going to fall into this area of reproach. Because, and and I've, I've been in churches in the past before, not this church, but other churches, where all of a sudden there's this flood of people that start showing up and saying, hey, do, do you know what this guy's doing? You know, like, do you know what business dealings this guy's had? Do you know what? And, and it just leads to this massive carnage. And, and all this reproach comes in the front door that nobody locally knew about. You know? So there's a sense in which we need to, men, we need to have a good testimony. And stay above reproach. The last one there is the character of a leader's wife is critical to his readiness to serve. So it's not just about you, men. You don't live in a bubble. You live in the context of your own homes, of which you need to be the pastor of. And the reputation that your wife has, Paul says, is every bit as critical to your leadership as it is to her own reputation. So, I feel like I'm really stepping on a lot of toes. These are all good things. 
These are all good things, and here's the reason why. is because as we teach and train our daughters, they need to hear these verses for their future, right? They need to hear these verses for their future. Like, this is, this is part of who Christ wants you to be. This is part of who God is molding you to be as a woman of faith, right? That, that you're not, you know, that you don't struggle with your temper, that you don't struggle with these things. And because these things, young ladies, will have an effect on your relationship at home. They will have a reflect on your husband's, you know, being a potential leader in the church and in the community. So these are things for you, ladies, to be working on to make sure that you're solid in. All right, let's go back to this idea of the mystery that Paul talked about there in verse 9. Let's keep reading in verse 14. We'll get to the end. Verse 14, Paul says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. There was a desire for Paul, even though he was incarcerated. There was a, there was a hope at that point that he had wrote this epistle, that he was still going to get out and still have the opportunity to travel to Ephesus and the other churches, because he talks about it in that context, that, that he wants to go see Timothy, he wants to go see Titus, he wants to, to come to them. Uh, that never happened. But he says, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So Paul's laying out this framework. He's laying out this idea of a, of a building. And he says, in essence, Timothy, Titus, he kind of writes to both of them, but he says here to Timothy, this is the foundation of how churches are going to work. If they're going to have any success... If there's going to be any measure of go forward, if, there's going to be, if they're going to be able to defend themselves from the, what he calls the wolves coming in, he talks about that in the book of Acts, if you're going to defend themselves, they have to have a, a good, solid foundation. Because it starts at the bottom up. It starts with the foundation of our faith. Right? We had a great opportunity yesterday. Well, I'm thinking of foundations. Who's, who's uh, gone out to the Marcus Flats and ever walked through the old town of Marcus? Oh boy, you got to go. It's kind of boring, I'm going to be honest. Right? Was it boring? It was boring. No, it's not boring. It's really cool because before they put the Grand Coulee Dam in, there was all these little communities that were closer to the river. And so if you drive up to Kettle Falls, take a right, go up the highway, just five or six miles, you come to the little town of Marcus, and you think, wow, this has been here a long time. No, the town of Marcus is there now, got moved like, it just went up one bench. It used to sit down on a bench closer to the Columbia River, and they moved it up one, one bench in preparation for the floodwaters of Grand Coulee to essentially cover it up. But this time of year right now, the water's low enough. You can walk the streets. There's still the concrete sidewalks. There's still asphalt down Main Street. Main Street just goes straight on out and drops down, you know, uh, to where I believe... We were trying to figure this out yesterday... I believe they used to have a ferry crossing there. Um, but there's all these foundations, right? Everything else is gone. Everything else is washed away. The part that's most important to the buildings are still there, the foundations. So there's these big square rectangular foundations. Some of them got kind of pushed in with heavy equipment or what have you, but there's still quite a few of the foundations. And essentially that's what Paul's saying here, that, that, that we're working on the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And if there's anything that the church 
uh, the one thing that the church needs to stand on, it's the truth of the Word of God. It's the truth of the Word of God. Truth in our culture is a moving target. I mean, it's all over. We don't, you know, it's here culturally speaking. Like, whatever's good for you is good, you know. And so we have all this craziness in our culture because there's nothing that is tethered down to anything that's objective truth. That's why you see what's going on in college sports with the, all the transgender stuff. And, like, whoever ever thought would, feminism would be the one that's defending, you know, women's sports. And defending it, there's like now a battle between feminism and the transgender movement because the transgender movement's taken over women's sports. Who would ever thought that that would have been true, right? And innately in all of that, and I don't necessarily agree with either side necessarily, where's the truth? Where's the truth? And the church has to stand for the truth, even if it's unpopular, even if it means scorn, even if it means pressure, even if it means being unpopular, even if it means that people are going to get bent out of shape, the church has to stand on truth. That has to be the foundation of our faith. He goes on to say, and without controversy, great is the mystery, again mentions this word mystery, great is the mystery of godliness. Now before I go any further, I'm going to say that if you do a little search, you'll find that this word mystery is mentioned like 25 times in the New Testament in a variety of different contexts, depending upon where you are. If you're in the, the book of Revelation, then, you know, John's talking about different things there and so on and so, so forth. But generally speaking, the writers of the New Testament honed in on this idea that the Christian faith in, in a way is a mystery. So how does he describe the mystery? Paul says this. He says, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached amongst the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. In verse 9, he said, holding, speaking about church leadership, he says, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Now here in verse 16, he says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Jesus went about preparing his disciples with these words out of Mark chapter 4, verse 11, where he said, and he said to them, to you it's been given to know, <clears throat> to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are on the outside, all things come in parables. Also in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul refers to the mystery several times, but he writes this one sentence here where he says, having made known to us the mystery of his will, speaking of the Lord, having, been, <clears throat> having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. So what is this mystery and why is it so important that church leaders are able to understand it and share it? Why is it that Jesus and the Apostle Paul make such a big deal about it? It's a mystery of wisdom and knowledge that's been hidden. Romans says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, I'm in Romans 16, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret. There's another opportunity where we see it's been kept secret since the world began. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Also in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, and to make 
all see, <clears throat> to make all see what is the fellowship of this mystery which from the beginning of the ages was hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. That's all the hidden part of it. That's all the, uh, the, 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 the several verses that talk about how what God was going to do through the ages, a big chunk of that, and the chunk that we now live in was never seen in ages past. There's a mysterious part about it that God said, I, I'm going to hold this aside, reveal it at the right time. Now here's the revealed part, Ephesians 3, 3 and 4, having been Having that by revelation, he made known to me, Paul's saying, the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages, from generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. So what is this mystery? It's really, we look at it from our perspective in 2020, is not so much of a mystery. Although I will tell you that people that are around you, people that you know that are not Christ followers, people that oppose God in, in how they live or what they say or what they believe, they still look at the Christian faith as a mystery in reality because they don't understand it. Their eyes have been closed to it. Part of our message as church leaders, part of what we're called to share is this, that God was made manifest in the flesh. That's the incarnation of Christ. Jesus was justified in the Spirit. That was declared at His, bath, at his baptism, Matthew 3 says, and also at His resurrection. Peter talks about it in 3.18, and also we can read about it in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 and 33. Jesus was seen by angels. There's a list of verses I presume that Michaela has on the screen for you, but Mark 1.13 Luke chapter 22 and Matthew 28. There's a great quote by C.H. Spurgeon when it comes to the seen by angels I'd like to share with you, where he says, The Godhead was seen in Christ by angels as they had never seen before. They had beheld the attribute of justice. They had seen the attribute of power. They had, <clears throat> they had marked the attribute of wisdom and seen the prerogative of sovereignty, but never had the angels seen love, condescension and tenderness. I don't think I pronounced that word right. Condescension and tenderness and pity in God as they saw these things repleasant in the person and the life of Christ. So the angels had never seen Christ in that format before. He was preached amongst the Gentiles, Paul says, and he was believed in the world. Jesus' parting comments to his disciples in Matthew 28 was to take the gospel to the unsaved world. The last thing that he says is he was received up in glory, which is his ascension, his finished work on our behalf, and his present intercession for us, all those marked by Luke 24, Hebrews 1, and 1 John 2. If the worship team would want to come on up, we'll uh, wind down here. This message of hope that we have to share is something that is to be shared by all of us, especially if we're in a place of church leadership, right? This is, this, the message is not for just guys that may stand up on the front or, or men that may show up and make decisions once a month on behalf of a church. This is everybody's message. This is everybody's message to give away. 
It's also the standard of character that we all should be aiming for. It's what we must be passing down to future generations. And our greatest asset, our greatest asset as we steward and spread the gospel is found in this verse in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says to the church in Colossae, he says, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery, this mystery among the Gentiles, which is this, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is part of the mystery that Paul was talking about when he's writing to Timothy, saying, hey, Jesus has changed you. Jesus is in you. The Holy Spirit resides within you to convict you of sin, to convict you of righteousness, to lead you into the future. That That has a changing effect on a person's life. It should be our message, but it also should be our message on display as Christ followers. That you're not the same person that you used to be. Your identity's changed. Everything's changed. Right? Everything's changed. So if, if, if you were one of those people, like I was, that was a little on the wild side in his teen years, and then somebody that I haven't seen now for 30 years comes in, they should see some sort of change in my life compared to how I was when I was 18. That's the Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not just so that other people can see Christ change, but that you can look at your own life and see Christ change in you. Amen? Right? So Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ in us. Jesus working His will and His character into our lives, growing us to be the leaders, growing us to be the Christ followers, is a picture of hope for a hurting world. Would you stand with us as we sing our last song?